0: interpretation talking story with guides and interpreters i am tim merriman your host coming to you from the big island of hawaii today my guest is pete divine he is a guide with uh, mountain sobek who leads international tours all over the world and he retired a couple of years ago as resident naturalist with yosemite conservancy well pete it's so great to see you it's been a I don't remember how many years. When's the last time we ran into each other?
1: Uh likewise Tim it is great to see you and it's really a privilege and a treat to have a conversation with you and catch up on our our worlds of interpretation uh that we both moved through for so many years. Uh you and I saw each other in Yosemite at some point maybe back in the 90s uh, early 90s I'm going to guess but uh i worked for you in 1982 i believe in pueblo yeah i think it was 1982 if that sounds right to you yeah that sounds right yeah and uh my gosh yeah i had just finished my biology degree at colorado college and was putting the feelers out in the region to to look at what was available because i did want to stay local to uh to the Front Range, and I found this uh, a notification for an internship at the this nature center in Pueblo that had a long, complicated name uh, at the time, uh, trying to put in too many ideas in one place. And uh, you changed that, and you changed a lot of other things, and uh, among those things was me. Uh, you were a big influence uh, in my formative years of my career in seeing the possibilities of what an interpretive leader can do as far as uh, reaching out to a community, building a supportive constituency, uh, creating a real diversity of programs. I mean, I, I learned how to become a bird bander when I was working for you. I also learned how to uh, I learned some carpentry and electrical and uh, plumbing skills in that facility that uh, we'd inherited from this the state honor farm, and you or that fellow Tom handed me a uh, a hammer and a bag of nails and said, "Now, here's the old hog barn. You can build yourself a room. We've got some car siding, and uh, you know." So I did. I converted a hog pen into my bedroom. And uh, there in the other half of the building was another part of your diverse interpretive uh, programming was this raptor center. And so I lived in a building with hawks and owls and eagles and, and their food supply. So we had that room that was full of cages, full of mice and rats that were to be fed to the the raptors as they recovered for hopefully eventual release and now and then a snake would come into the barn and it would get into the room full of mice and it would it would slither into the cage and eat some mice and then it was too fat to come out again so we would sometimes find that in the morning we'd go in there and there was a a cage full of mice that only had one snake in it now so we'd let it outside the back and uh The other thing we had in there to feed the raptors, you had gotten people in the community to donate uh, frozen game meat. You know, like dad had shot a deer or an antelope three years before, and they just never finished eating all the the antelope steak or the elk burger or what have you. And it got donated to the raptor center to feed to those birds of prey. And now and then that stuff fed interns. Uh, So that was quite a life of uh, starting there at that scrappy little outfit, but to watch what you did with uh, your creative energy was impressive. I haven't been back to the nature center there in Pueblo for some years, but my goodness, uh, I hear it's come quite a long way and it's really a a center of the community that everybody knows where this is and everyone likes to go there.
0: Well, it's been through a funny transition and I I made a lot of mistakes, I have to say. Uh... When I arrived there, it was a staff of two. When I left, it was a staff of roughly 84. and
1: uh, Amazing. uh, uh,
0: We had a rafting company, uh, a restaurant, uh, all sorts. And they were most of the staff. We had a program staff of about 17 or 18 at that time. And I think they're down to just a few people now. But Uh the mistake I made was to get the, the university offered to take us over. And... That gave us benefits. We had not had paid benefits until Mm. the university made that offer. And it ended up being a mistake because the university attorneys ended up killing off all of our entrepreneurial fundraising and uh, a lot of our programming that too dangerous, too too much potential
1: Uh litigation. What a shame. Yeah. Well, learning experiences, but what you built... Uh, it was phenomenal to see and really inspiring to me to think of what the possibilities were. See, and I, I,
0: I remember you being there, but I don't remember exactly when. And you were one of those lucky people that got to actually build a space you lived in. And mm-hmm. I said, lucky, I should be embarrassed that the health department didn't find out what we were doing. Uh, <laughs> because there's probably all sorts of regulations about not having... Uh, a mouse production room next to a living room for a student or whatever.
1: Right. In a place that's probably still had some um, hog feces here and there. You should know that Lisa and I will lead a uh, an eco tour
0: to Tanzania in March 2024. And Tom Cowper and Betsy Rothermel, who were staff back then, will be going on this. And Oh, I my have- gosh. I haven't gotten to spend time with them for the last 35 years, and they signed on to a tour with us. So we're gonna have the great fun of traveling through the Serengeti and Tarangiri and a lot of these
1: great national parks. Uh, um, I mean, that is that is amazing to hear that name and that you guys are getting together and in East Africa, of all things. Tim, that's amazing. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I'll give him my best.
0: I, I will do that. Uh, you were there at a very unique time because we were trying to figure out what we could do and and be and and it ended up being pretty dramatic because it, our best year we had 17,000 kids out for field trips and 300,000 annual attendance and wow. million dollar budget
1: and yeah that is pretty good for a small blue collar one one industry town
0: well, and remember, out of work and hungry, eat an environmentalist was the bumper sticker on a lot of cars.
1: Yep, yeah, exactly. Wow. Well, bravo for what you did there.
0: Well, I never know when I get to talk to someone who was an intern with us so long ago, whether it had any real positive impact on their life or not. But you've had a career as a naturalist, and that's
1: unusual. You know, another thing uh, that's occurring to me now that you where you had an influence, you had a friend who worked for the Park Service, and you had them um, come and talk to us interns just on a casual basis uh, about how to how to file for a seasonal Park Service job. Here are the tips and tricks of the insider of how to make this happen. And that was really useful for me. Uh, So I I applied for a seasonal Park Service job after that, and I didn't get it. And I applied the next year, and I didn't get it. But I I had a a path that I was pursuing. Then I applied to the Student Conservation Association, the SCA, and that got my toe in the door. And then when I applied for Park Service seasonal jobs, I got hired, Uh, snapped up pretty quickly, and. Enjoyed uh, several wonderful summers as a seasonal National Park Service ranger, and um, that led to other good things of really uh, a life of working uh, with the national park system, um, but in the nonprofit sector rather than for the government.
0: Right. Well, I don't know whether it was Bill or not, but Bill Gwaltney back then was a living history ranger over at Bent's Old Fort. And he was very frequently over at the Nature Center helping us with a fundraiser or uh, doing something in those years. He's going to Africa with us also on this trip. So it's a reunion. Oh, that's amazing. On a big, big frame. It's going to be a lot of fun.
1: That is really neat to hear, Tim.
0: When you were at Colorado College, what did you dream of being your, kind of your dream job after school?
1: Oh, I um, I really think that uh, I ended up, doing more or less what I had envisioned when I was a a teenager or maybe even a younger boy than that, growing up uh, uh, outside Boston, Massachusetts. Um, My parents were great in terms of a lot of our family vacations were camping trips. We'd go up to the White Mountains in New Hampshire uh, or up to Acadia National Park in Maine. And then when I was in sixth grade, that summer we did a big, the classic family road trip in the station wagon camping in the national parks of the West. So as an 11 or 12-year-old, getting to see the Grand Canyon and see Yellowstone, that that made a big impression. That really enlarged my world to see that these places I had heard of were real. And the best thing we did was we would go on some ranger walks. We'd go to the campfire program that the rangers did. And that had a big impression on me as a 12-year-old. Look what these people get to do. They live and work in these really pretty places and they get to share something that they're obviously passionate about with the visiting public. That that made an impression on me as a kid and uh, that was one of the things that uh, uh, I, I thought early on. How fun would it be to be a park ranger and get to do what those guys do of talking to the public? And so I think um, I was lucky enough that in most of my volunteering and work experience was along those lines of doing something with uh, education or interpretation for the public, um, including getting to work as a ranger at Mesa Verde and wear that flat hat was really a a privilege and an exciting role to be in. And then working at Canyonlands also and Colorado National Monument. And
0: uh, I had
1: another offer for a Park Service job at one point that I ended up having to turn down just because of the, the timing of it and another professional commitment, but uh, almost worked as a river ranger at Dinosaur National Monument, which would, would have been really something uh to be an interpreter and a, a resource protection ranger uh on the on the green in the Yampa the River would have been fun. But that was another path not taken. So yeah, when I was at when I was at by the time I was at Colorado College. I knew going into school, I was going to major in biology. I almost self-designed a major called natural history, but the biology people talked me out of that. They said, you put that on your resume, no one's going to know what that is, but if you have a biology degree, that's that fits in the world better. So I stuck with the biology degree and uh, coming out of school and going right to work at the what's now the nature center of pueblo uh where you were my boss that was that was a perfect segue and then to go on to um park service work and and that kind of thing
0: yeah and i'd been a park naturalist at uh, illinois state parks 8 years before coming to pueblo so i
1: i remember that um giant city or rock city or something like that giant city you have a good memory okay
0: my wife lisa had the same experience as you growing up her parents took her to National Park. She saw rangers uh, giving talks and walks and had a similar feeling about that. My dad took us to our brother's house in Texas, and he was a Baptist preacher. And I'm afraid I had no vision. I was going to be a high school biology teacher. And for me, it was revelation that you could actually do that out in the resource. And uh, when I learned that, I was I was gone forever from any desire to be in the classroom full time because different
1: things. Understandable. Yeah. I can relate to that for sure.
0: Now I know that you went to work eventually for Yosemite Institute.
1: Uh, What Mm -hmm. was your role there? So I had had experience uh, before besides working with the school groups in Pueblo, Colorado. I'd also worked at the, Cape Cod Outdoor Education Center with school groups that came for about a week at a time and um, learned something about that format. And then uh, natural history uh, day camp with Massachusetts Audubon Society uh, was also informative for working with students. So I had heard several times from different people as I was starting off in my career about this place called Yosemite Institute. And it had really quite a high reputation within the field of outdoor environmental education. Uh, And the fact that its campus was Yosemite National Park was a big draw too. Uh, And I had met um, a fellow in Colorado Springs who told me about Yosemite Institute and I eventually applied for work there. And he was then the education director at the time. And uh, to be honest, I wasn't really interested in going to California I was falling in love with the Colorado Plateau, but uh, the the caliber of the organization, the people, and the work that was being done at Yosemite Institute in interpreting public lands, national parks, the, the natural world to students of California, that really drew me. I I Once I got to know it more, I really wanted to be a part of that. And so it was really an honor to get hired to be part of the faculty of Yosemite Institute and uh so i taught there with um a group of people that i just thought were terrific really dedicated to what they were trying to do uh in connecting young people to uh the natural world through this gorgeous classroom of yosemite national park and i was getting ready to move on from yosemite institute after teaching three years but then the education director position came open so i applied for that. And the more I thought about it, the more I really wanted to be the education director there. And so then that's what I did for another, I don't know, 15 years or so. Uh, and what an honor that was to take on the challenge of overseeing this this group of people that I thought of as really high level, um, a faculty of 25 to 30 people who were just dedicated outdoor education professionals and to hire those people and train them and mentor them and supervise and coach them and support them in what they needed um, i was in a lucky role of for the most part i would get them oriented in the map explain how the schedule work got out of their way and they took it from there and did the magic with the students so those were hundreds and hundreds of lucky kids uh, every month that were coming through Yosemite Institute and having this exposure with these people that really cared about the students and about the, the resource, about their subject matter of um, trees and geology and uh, American Indians and John Muir and why national parks are important and why we're so lucky to have national parks as part of our cultural heritage in this country. These were college Pardon? or high school students? Uh, the students were mostly middle school. Oh, middle school. So there were some some elementary school students, um, mostly middle school, some high school. Occasionally we had some college groups, but the people who were doing the instructing were all out of college. They all had at least a bachelor's degree. Many had uh, um, a master's degree and a teaching credential, that kind of thing. Um, but very dedicated folks and lively and full of love uh, for for what they did. And I had the same
0: experience because straight out of a master's degree, I was hired as um, to teach in environmental workshops at Southern Illinois University's outdoor laboratory. And at that outdoor lab, some 4,000 acre thing on a lake, um, I ran workshops for high school students from all over the state of Illinois, five days long, And then I added field ecology workshops and had them banding birds and doing topographic mapping and all sorts of stuff. Terrific. realized we had that uh, parallel experience in that. That that was great. And I had, like you, I had these great people I would hire just out of college and turn them loose. And they were so enthusiastic and committed that they did wonderful things.
1: Yep. Yeah, I was. I felt like I was really in a, a fortunate role of having people that really. What I wanted them to do, they were dying to do that, uh, at the to the best of their abilities. Um, so it was really a privilege to be a part of uh, a team of people with this dedication to the mission, and um, I think in terms of uh, career and stuff for any of your listeners who might think about this, one of the points I wanted to make is. If you're interested in the national parks, the it's not the only way to work in a national park isn't by being a park ranger. Uh all the national parks have a nonprofit partner, uh, if not more than one, and they're all doing valuable work of one kind or another. So there are national park jobs that aren't strictly a government job, if that makes sense. I just so,
0: I just taught a CIG course uh virtually online. And uh, one of the ladies in the course uh, was uh, asking about National Park Ranger jobs. And I said, you know, not not the easiest thing to land just to apply for and get, but um, all of these nonprofit partners, plus Zantera uh, and uh, Aramark, all of these concessionaires who hire, a lot of them are hiring certified interpretive trainers and guides like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, this is a key point. The concessioners now, the, the commercial companies that have a, a contract with the U.S. government to run the hotels and the shops and the restaurants in the parks or bus tour companies, some of them have an interpretive services function where they are doing public programs, leading walks or evening programs for the visiting public, maybe someone that's staying at their hotel, and um, they're really doing their best to uh Adhere to the the national standards that uh, NAI puts out there and the Park Service puts out there. It's really, really quite something how the concessioners have uh, upped their game in terms of interpretation for the public.
0: Who is the funding behind uh, Yosemite Institute and uh, that kind of programming?
1: So the institute, Yosemite Institute, which I should mention too, now has a, a new name. It's called Nature Bridge and it expanded from Yosemite to the Golden Gate National Recreation Area uh, in San Francisco and uh, to Olympic National Park up in Washington. And for a while had a Southern California campus in Santa Monica Mountains and Channel Islands, and that got interrupted by uh, a catastrophic wildfire. But now they also have a program outside Washington, D.C. at a National Park Service site called uh, Prince William uh, Forest Park uh for kids from the DC capital area. But anyway, Nature Bridge is the name of the organization now. And at the time it had a uh it's a nonprofit organization with its own bylaws, its own board of directors. Um but the funding model was largely self-sustaining. It was fee for service. Students paid or a school paid or parents paid or they had the school held fundraisers to get their kids up to Yosemite. And that's what paid the expenses of the program. Since I was there, they've increased the proportion of their revenue that comes from fundraising, um, corporate partners and individual donors and that sort of thing. But um, it was a freestanding, independent nonprofit that has a cooperative agreement with the National Park Service, but um, was, was its own entity and still is its own entity. So yeah, very impressive organization, a lot of strengths. Lisa and I were
0: speaking uh, at a conference with World Heritage leaders in Lushan National Park in China. And a uh, person seated next to us on the, in the audience out there, and one of the guest speakers was Mike Tollison. Uh, sure. And I don't know what Mike was
1: back then at Yosemite, but he was at Yosemite then, yeah? He sure was. Wow, that's terrific that Mike, I didn't realize Mike had gotten back to China and you crossed paths. That is terrific. Mike had two big, big jobs at Yosemite. Uh, After a long Park Service career, he was the superintendent of Yosemite National Park for many years. And um, for those that don't know, superintendent really is like the king. That's a person that really is in charge of a lot of responsibilities and a lot of people and Yosemite in particular with hundreds of employees and millions and millions of dollars in budget. Very political uh, role. Um, So Mike did a very capable job of that. And he helped foster uh, international visibility of Yosemite uh, with trips to China. And um, this is something that came back uh, to me uh, a a few years later. He, um, He helped establish Yosemite's first sister parks in other countries. A lot of people are familiar with a city has a sister city in another country, if not several. Um, I would say uh, most American cities, uh, even smaller ones, have a sister city somewhere else in the world. And sometimes it's just a paper agreement. Sometimes it's the Chamber of Commerce that trades gifts or it's uh, trade delegations go back and forth with this. They have a relationship and they make um, some business relationship out of it. But um, a lot of national parks, a lot of our bigger ones, especially in the United States, have a sister national park in another country, if if not more than one. So Mike Tollison established uh, two sister national parks in China back in 2006. And uh, that was something new for all of us. And to wonder, what is, a, what is a national park like in China? How is it different from an American national park? Uh, do the rangers wear the smoky bear hat? they have any conservation heroes uh in the national park system like Stephen Mather and John Muir I wondered are there are there signs like Yosemite don't leave food in your car in China does it say don't leave bamboo in your car uh the panda bears will break in um so Mike left his his uh job and his career with the Park Service to become the uh, president, the, C- the CEO effectively of Yosemite Conservancy, which is the, the park's nonprofit partner, main, main nonprofit partner. Um, again, all the national parks have one of these nonprofit groups that supports the park service in ways that the park service itself can't do. The government can't go out and raise money, uh, but the nonprofit can. And so Yosemite Conservancy, one of the bigger national park nonprofits and the very first one we should mention just a few years after the park service was created as a federal agency they realized the nonprofit sector could do some things that the government can't do so uh it's become a big influence on every every visitor who comes to the park will interact with something that the conservancy has its hands in they'll see a volunteer at a trailhead helping people out with orientation and directions and safety messaging. They'll come to a, an exhibit that was paid for by conservancy donors. They'll go on a program that's organized by the conservancy. They'll go to the visitor center and buy a, a book about the geology of Yosemite that's published by the conservancy and sold by the conservancy bookstore. If you buy a book in the park visitor center, all your money stays in the park to help help the park. So the can. Conservancy and its counterparts in other national parks really do a lot for these shared resources of the national parks, but in a nonprofit way that's, um, I mean, I loved working for the park service. I loved being a park ranger that was really an honor to be in that role, but working for the leaner meaner nonprofit uh, allowed a lot more creativity and a lot more quick decision making. And if I had some idea, I could call up the boss. I could talk to Mike Tollis and say, what, what do you think about this? And we could start doing it the next day, which is not something you can do necessarily through the big machinery of the federal government. And I say this with fondness. My my uh, wife, uh, who you knew from years ago, I'm sure um, she came down and visited in Pueblo a few times, but uh, Sonny uh, is one of the few people who, went to a liberal arts college and majored in anthropology and then did that for her career. I'm really proud of her career path too, where she uh, took her anthropology degree and became Yosemite's senior archaeologist for many years and uh, really an impressive achievement for her uh, being Yosemite's um, chief archaeologist for a long time and protecting cultural resources and working with the tribes and a lot of wonderful time in the parks backcountry doing field work uh, for archaeology and protecting the, the human heritage of that, what most people think of as a natural landscape. But uh, anyway, um, my wife, I'm very proud of her Park Service career. Um, and so I don't want to say that the nonprofits are better, they're just different.
0: Yeah, no, I know. And I remember Sonny well. I She was wonderful as a, as a guest who would come down and visit you. And uh, we enjoyed getting acquainted with her. I, I think it's amazing. Uh, most of us, Lisa and I both started out with uh, state park jobs, running visitors. Right. And we learned in a fairly short period of time that we m- maybe weren't going to be as good a fit for a government agency as we might be for wow. some.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And then she went private and became a consultant and an interpretive planner and literally worked all over the United States now in the last 20 years all over the world. And I learned that nonprofit world, 30 years of being a nonprofit executive, I had the freedom to do things. As you mentioned, you could call Mike and pitch an idea and get on it. Um, mm-hmm. Some of us just need that <laughs> I don't know, speed of connection, that ability to go fast. So,
1: yeah, yeah. No, that was uh, that you again, you were an inspiring role model that way, Tim, in terms of being able to be creative and uh, make things happen on your pace. In fundraising,
0: the funny thing that happened to me back when I was working with high school students is I had long hair and a beard and mm-hmm. uh, wore bell bottom trousers. And this was the age of hippies. Uh, 69 70 71 72 i spoke at a illinois federation of sportsmen's clubs and at their annual meeting and they were joking they were telling jokes about hippies at, at the docks okay. and i'm there cringing because i'm going to get up next and talk and i'm going oh gee how do i get credibility here well i got up and pitched my ideas for uh, high school students from all over the state coming to Southern Illinois and essentially camping out in a tent top structure and learning about nature in a very direct way. And at the end of their meeting, they said, uh, well, we'll sponsor uh, several hundred high school students a year. We'll pay their fees. So let us know how to do that.
1: That's terrific.
0: And then... A few weeks later, the Illinois Federation of Women's Clubs asked me to speak, and I, I pitched the same thing to them, and they said the same thing. And in a matter of a couple months, I had sponsorship for as many kids as we could put through that program in a year. Fantastic. And I, I had no idea what I was doing. It was, I would go to dumb luck. Uh,
1: uh. Well, you had the right idea, and people its people were able to look past the veneer of, oh, that guy's a hippie, and look past the label and say, this is a good idea, let's support this. That's terrific. I love a story like that. Yeah,
0: and I, I had to be honest and say, I probably had, as they probably looked at me and thought, well, I wonder if he's a serious guy. Uh, I looked at them and thought, well, maybe they're only interested in hunting and fishing. And the answer was, they wanted their kids to have a broad connection to an understanding of nature. So
1: that's, that's great. That's just the way it should be.
0: You went, you went on to work for Yosemite Conservancy, right?
1: Yes. Yes. After um, about 20 years with Yosemite Institute, I transitioned over to Yosemite Conservancy and uh, ran their education program. Uh, So the Conservancy's uh, audience was adults, adult learners. So we had a field seminar program. Uh, where people would come up and take often a weekend program and it would be a specialized course in botany or geology or um, Native American studies or history or something like that. There were also backpack trips that were into the backcountry with uh, some of the wilderness rangers on their day off would lead these outings and a really in-depth exploration of Yosemite's wilderness. And um, people forget, or if you if you're only a little familiar with yosemite most people focus on yosemite valley which is less than one percent of yosemite national park there are 800 miles of hiking trails in yosemite it's the size of rhode island so there's a tremendous wild part of the national park that uh most people don't see and um the the traffic and the crowding that you can experience sometimes in yosemite valley is really only a a part of the whole of yosemite so we had our field seminar programs where we would not be in the crowds art classes photography classes astronomy classes um the bird watching classes wildflower identification so that's the program i inherited that uh was not the first but the second field seminar program in any of the national parks. Rocky Mountain National Park was the first started by a woman who had been trained in Yosemite. But uh, our field seminar program was quite a venerable organization. And um, we've since seen that, that while I was there and since I was there, we've seen a change in the in the audience that um, there are fewer people who are interested in coming to take Uh, a three-day field seminar in learning about wildflowers or sedges or ferns or um, the specialized stuff. People want shorter programs and a little more general. There aren't as many natural history fanatics as there were 30 years ago, 50 years ago, who wanted to spend a weekend with a hand lens keying out uh, asters. So, um, we do the the organization now, uh, which, from which I retired a couple of years ago, they are, are more general programs and for more general public people that aren't necessarily naturalists or botanists or birders, but they want a general introduction to Yosemite. So we do a lot more of those kinds of things. And in particular, the thing that I started and grew were the custom programs where you or your group or your family can hire your own naturalist who will lead you on a morning outing or an all-day or multi-day or a backpack trip uh, with your particular interests, your pace, your people you want to be with. Uh, and that's been very successful and has grown a lot and helped the program pay for itself. Uh, besides that, those custom programs being for individuals or families, a lot of tour companies hire Yosemite Conservancy to provide a naturalist for their group. So over the years, we've worked with National Geographic and Backroads and Abercrombie and Kent and all kinds of travel agencies, Tauk Tours. So they'll hire us to step on the bus or to lead a, a hike for, could be two hours, could be all day, could be several days. Uh, Road Scholar is another one that hires us as the local specialist in Yosemite. Uh, so that's been a real privilege to see that expand and the potential of having a chance to reach more people through those agencies bringing people to the park.
0: We've had the unique experience of getting to train uh, for about a decade now in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is a community guides program where they literally take these unemployed, bright young people in the local communities around the national parks, recruit them as community guides train them in both content and process. And then they wait at the visitor center and uh, the person at the front desk says, if you want to pick up an experienced guide to go with you for the day in your van or your car, and they jump in and they make a living. And some of them go on to be private guides with big companies and really become very skilled uh, naturalists in the field. And it's wonderful to work with. So it sounds very much patterned after the kind of thing you've been doing.
1: Yeah, well, that is a great system to hear about something like that, Tim. That's really cool um, to develop those capabilities in the destinations that that people are going to from around the world. Um, So yeah, I mean, Yosemite gets 4 million visitors a year and we're, the park rangers and their programs are able to reach some fraction and we reach another fraction and, fraction and we, we try to, there's a lot to learn about Yosemite and a lot to appreciate about any of the national parks. And we try to convey those messages and spur people's curiosity about what they're seeing in that phenomenal landscape of our national parks and, and especially in a place like Yosemite, the history of how did this become a national park? And in Yosemite, of course, we have a friendly rivalry with that other Y park that is acknowledged around the world as the very first national park in 1872. But not to forget, eight years earlier, the United States Congress and the President of the United States already protected Yosemite as a public park um, for the nation. Um, They gave it to the state of California at that time to manage it because the Federal presence in the West was very minimal in a brand new state of California, but um, the first national park with small letters uh, was uh, Yosemite, eight years before Yellowstone.
0: Yeah, that's it's it's great stories. I still tell the story of Enos Mills meeting John Muir in California. Oh yeah, and uh, perfect. <laughs> I mean, what a amazing thing that. Mills as a young man meant the old man of the Yeah. Just park. randomly. Yeah. Yeah. And when and he said to him, You should write books, you should lead people on inspiring trips.
1: And and he did. He, he did. did. Yep. Muir sent off a big ripple with that one. Um, Enos Mills, the effectively the John Muir of Rocky Mountain National Park. Exactly. Really quite a local hero here.
0: Well, and I still encourage young people to read Adventures of a Nature Guide, where Mills still identifies some of the basic ideas about interpretation that I value. Like it's not the destination, it's the journey. It's (laughs) it's,
1: yeah, right on. Yep. uh, His his book is right on the shelf there. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's terrific. It's fun to be in the footsteps of Enos Mills after having for many years been in the footsteps of John Muir.
0: Yeah, You've really been in legendary territory in both parks. So
1: yeah. Uh, Yeah.
0: How did you get into the Mount Sobek?
1: Yeah, uh, after uh, we established sister national parks in China, and I just was curious about what does that mean? And really, how is a national park in China different from from how it is in the United States? Uh, and I wondered, do other members, other donors to Yosemite Conservancy, people who love Yosemite their whole lives, to whom it's meant a great deal, would they be interested in going to see a national park in china uh and so i proposed this to the boss and what do you think we you know we leave trips all over yosemite of all different kinds what if we did one to one of these new sister national parks and they said let's look into it and so i i went over to china very cheaply and scouted visited the two national parks and started building relations with the park staff in those places and figured out where could we stay and where could we hike. And uh, sure enough, people signed up and wanted to go see what a national park in China was like. And one of the big lessons uh, I learned from exploring the national parks in China, um, the first one I think was that um, uh, we think of China as this ancient culture, this civilization that's been there for thousands of years before before United States of America but their national parks, very, very new. They didn't have national parks uh, really until the late 1970s, a hundred years after Yellowstone. So they're still learning this. They're still in an early phase of developing a, a system and a definition and of meaning of what is a national park. Uh, so that was interesting to see there. At the time they had no national park service there wasn't a consistent coherent agency that oversaw all the national parks in china they were all very homegrown and locally run rather than run out of beijing capital city so that was really interesting to see uh that there they had a lot to learn from what had already been learned in united states uh so that was interesting uh but the other the main big message that i got and i think the visitors that i took with me got was those rangers are as dedicated as ours. Just like when well, you think of a national park ranger who really cares about the place and wants to protect it and wants to share it with people. The Chinese rangers were just as passionate and just as committed to the stewardship of their, their national treasures in and, and the natural world. It's just really a wonderful thing to have that in common uh, despite our different cultures and our sometimes different politics, unfortunately. Um, that big overall message was very gratifying and very unifying that uh those those folks care uh, just like ours do that was neat to see so i did those trips through the conservancy uh for a few years and then we suspended them for a while and um the leadership decided not to do the international parks trips anymore and i took the idea to one of the local contractors near Yosemite who does work with Mountain Travel Sobek, and they proposed it. And Sobek said, we would love to run this trip to Yosemite sister parks in China. So then I started to do that. And then the, our last trip was just as the coronavirus was breaking loose in China. We had no idea, of course, for several months later, but uh, we, we were there just just before the outbreak, and that was the the end of those trips. For for um, since then, uh, I haven't been back to China since 2019. And at this point, I'm not I'm not thinking that I will. But I I miss it. I'd love to go back if the circumstances were such. Fascinating country. I loved the people. I loved the food. The landscapes just unbelievable. Similar experience. Ten trips. And you've been yeah. to China's. Uh, more than I have, and I'm jealous of that, Tim. Every We've been all over, in a
0: way. Uh, we were in Jilin, the easternmost province, and doing mm-hmm. kind of an eco-tour plan for uh, Jilin Tiger Reserve. And uh, that was fascinating. But we worked mostly... My my first trip, I was doing training at Chingchen uh, Mountain National Park outside of Chengdu, and... Mm-hmm the uh, Chengdu Biological Institute director met with me and he said, uh, I wanna take you up to Wollong Panda Reserve. Nice. We got up there and the director came out to meet us and he shook hands and in a very American accent, said hello. And I said, did you go to school in the US? Oh yeah, University of Idaho. I said, <laughs> you know Sam Hamm and Gary Mackless? Oh yeah, I know both of them very well. I was in that, Isn't that
1: something? <laughs> Small world. Yeah. That's terrific.
0: Lisa ended up leading an interpretive plan for Wollong Panda Reserve. Nice. One where years later, the mountain literally fell on the Panda Reserve and yeah. killed keepers, killed pandas.
1: Yeah, know. terrible destruction.
0: And so, uh, and we also, we were down in, uh, oh gosh, Hongzhou uh, for a meeting huh? uh which is a incredible uh, it was the where the song dynasty was located back
1: uh yeah and west west lake west lake yeah oh yeah beautiful
0: yeah shishi wetlands uh sanctuary
1: nice <laughs> so a lot of yeah uh, I really like Hangzhou for a big gritty city but if you can get in that West Lake area my gosh terrific
0: yeah well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, do you st- do you still lead eco tours of any kind?
1: Uh, nope. I've uh, put that aside for now since we relocated from Yosemite back to uh, Sonny's family's home state of Colorado, uh, and we we have we miss Yosemite a great deal. The community there uh, and the landscape. Oh. I feel really viscerally connected. I have dreams about it probably every week either the people or the the terrain literally the landscape is in my subconscious at this point so we miss that a lot but it has been so exciting and so stimulating to get to explore Colorado so we have had a lot of fun uh, reconnecting with the birds and bicycling and the hiking and backpacking and exploring new places like Gosh, when I worked for you in Pueblo, I didn't own a car. I never had a car in college, so I was in Colorado, but I didn't drive all over Colorado seeing everything. So we get some catching up to do in that regard. And um, we live in a little small town, but we have the Rocky Mountain Botanic Gardens is right here. And so I volunteer over there uh, helping develop this. It's a fairly new facility, but that's been another great way to reconnect with the Rocky Mountain flora and to get to know more local people who are also interested in the outdoors and uh in plants in particular and then spending time in Rocky Mountain National Park it's just up the road uh getting to know the operations of the Rocky Mountain Conservancy which is again this national park nonprofit that does phenomenal wonderful work and really important work for the national parks um and Rocky has a sister national park that's on the border of Slovakia and Poland in the, the high Tatra mountains. And I have started to look into, could I propose that we do a trip, uh, take some conservancy donors to go see the sister national park in the, the mountains of, of Europe? So who knows, maybe someday. What were the sister parks uh, for Yosemite in China? Uh, so in China, and this uh, um, in China, in the, I I kind of overlay the map of China with the map of the United States and say one would be roughly where maybe Smoky Mountains is or maybe Shenandoah. It's in the east, but it's not on the coast. It's a little bit interior and a small isolated mountain range called Wangshan or Yellow Mountain. And everybody in China knows this little mountain range the way everyone in America knows the Statue of Liberty. It's been part of their art and their poetry for millennia. So it has this cultural recognition, but as a national park and also as a world heritage site, uh, that's significant on a global basis. And so it's a beautiful little mountain range with extremely steep granite peaks. And I think everybody in this country has seen artwork uh, or photography uh, of Wangshan. Of Yellow Mountain in a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. On the wall or on the placemat design, that strange, surreal, alien planet-looking spires and gnarled trees and the swirling mist and clouds. That's that's the real thing. That's what Yellow Mountain really looks like. It's it's small and localized. And the the other incredible thing, besides just the visual attraction of the terrain, is the most incredible hiking trails I have ever seen. They're all highly engineered all built to modern standards, but they go to the most extreme places, up these peaks that you just can't believe there's a way to hike up that thing or down through this gorge. But sure enough, they engineered stairs and ramps and walkways, it is phenomenal. The trail work at Wangshan. The other sister national park of Yosemite would be more like where Yellowstone is in our country way out west at the edge of the Tibetan Plateau in Sichuan province, which you know, uh, you get there going through Chengdu uh, to Jujai which you also I think mentioned that you've been to Jujai Uh It's part of the, the habitat of the giant panda and another completely different kind of uh, mountain range and the uh, the the big thing it has in common with Yosemite besides mountains is the waterfalls, really different kind of waterfalls But boy, the waterworks, the water phenomena features are just amazing, unusual, and special water behaviors at uh, Jujigo.
0: They have those weave down over all the waterfalls so you can take a bus to
1: the top and then walk the trails as far down as you want. It's just. Yeah, there must be 20 miles of boardwalk in that park that allows you to get to these places uh, along these stream sides that you wouldn't otherwise. It's really impre- impressive access. And no one drives their car to either of these national parks. That's a big difference from the United States. Uh, there at Zhijiai Go, you come to the gate, and you you a bus will take you up through, and you can walk as much as you want. But no one's driving their car in there or at Wangshan.
0: No, in the morning we went to Zhijiai Go, uh, they had us queue up outside the entrance, and mm-hmm. there was a huge number of people. And I asked the, one of their staff, and they said, well, some mornings there's 5,000 people waiting to go on the trails in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible.
1: It and, really is. It really is.
0: Uh, it was a world uh-huh. It experience. It was great to see their parks, and I agree. The staff I met there and the staff at the Panda Reserves – incredibly committed people
1: yeah i should mention too yosemite has uh has uh we had a, another superintendent after mike Tollison who had the idea let's have a sister national park on every continent we want to show how yosemite inspires the world so uh the next sister park was down in the southern tip of south america torres del pine uh, in chile uh, which most people have seen the photographs of those dramatic peaks there at the tip of, tip of the Andes. Uh, and then we added uh, several national parks in Nepal, in the Himalaya. So Mount Everest is part of a sister national park, uh, and Royal Chitwan out in the Tarai, a big wildlife park in Nepal. And then, um, uh, Cumbres de Monterrey in Mexico, just over the Texas border a little bit, another place where, like Yosemite, rock climbing is a big activity of people who visit Cumbres de Monterrey. Uh, in Europe, our sister national park was in the, the German Alps in Bavaria, Berchtesgaden uh, National Park, which uh, is also known to everybody in Europe. And Americans know that is the place where the sound of music was filmed. Yeah. So beautiful. when you see Julie Andrews singing about the hills of there she is in Bechtusgaden National Park in Germany, a sister park of Yosemite and also a World Heritage Site. Uh and then um in Africa, Nagorogoro Crater in Tanzania. That's where we're going. sister. Park. It's our
0: fourteenth trip to East Africa, and we, we'll go to Angorogoro every time we go to Tanzania.
1: So fantastic. Yep. Yeah so some of our some of Yosemite's wildlife biologists went to Nagoro Goro to talk with and work with and train the wildlife management people in uh East Africa and just wonderful exchanges that's great uh, we had our trail crew guys go down to Torres del Paine and assist the trail crew in Chile with building uh foot bridges across some of these gorges that the main hiker circuit goes uh through Torres del Paine um these and, and Mike Tollison, of course, has been to the, the sister parks in China and uh, had his picture taken at the Panda Reserves with the pandas up close and cuddly and pretty fun, those exchanges. And we've had we had rangers from both Zhijiai and Wangshan come and spend time in Yosemite and just uh, fantastic interchanges of people that care about something more than politics. And what is Xi Jinping and Joe Biden saying to each other? That doesn't matter we've got more important things to do with conservation and stewardship and, and sharing this stuff with the world.
0: Experience on the ground as well. I have yeah. one final kind of big question for you. Uh, yeah. I, I read on LinkedIn that you really are enjoying retirement. And I'm curious as to why that is. And I'm curious about you taking the
1: CIG course in 2019. Thank you and Lisa for starting up that whole idea of CIG. I mean, after being an interpreter for many, many years, uh, and I thought, well, why do I need that? Uh, But the course was taught by employees of the concession uh, there in Yosemite, um, uh, now uh, Aramark. And before, I think at the time I took it, might've been Delaware North uh, Corporation, but the, the interpretive leadership there and there in that organization was really strong and i had seen a little bit of what they did and i was impressed enough to think i want to i want to take a course from these people and make myself official with that certificate and uh i was uh really impressed with the job they did so ashley mccomb and Corey gehring were the two instructors and they were a terrific team and they did a phenomenal professional Heartfelt job, and um, so I got a lot from that, and was inspired to up my game to like I hope I can meet their standards. And uh, it was it was really fun to be part of that with some people who were brand new interpreters for the concessioner, uh, but have great instructors in Corey and Ashley. And I should say, since I since I left or as I was leaving Yosemite Conservancy, we hired both of them to come work for us. Uh, for the nonprofit sector. And since then they've been there contributing a great deal of their skill and their passion to how Yosemite Conservancy reaches visitors and gets them gets visitors inspired to be part of the stewardship of Yosemite. Have you ever been to the big island. I I have. uh, But it must be 30 35 years ago. Yeah, had a wonderful visit and. um, walking across the floor of Kilauea Crater when you could do that. Uh, Never done that? Yeah. Oh, it was amazing. Just amazing. Knowing that there was a lake of lava a little bit under the crust.
0: Yeah. I I will say that I took a Hawaii forest and trail trip down when there was red lava flowing down near the ocean in the park. And uh, the guide took us up within five feet of the red lava. And there was a... passed a sign that said don't approach more than 150 feet of the red lava and we're standing with it literally coming out
1: a yard and a half from our feet And I'm going wow there. that's that's dramatic that's dynamic stuff right there boy well please know
0: that we would love to uh see you and sonny so if you get the inclination to do a y vacation come and visit
1: tim thanks so much i would love to take you up on that and so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to talk her into it. Um, uh, and let me say too, on a professional basis, thanks for all that you and Lisa have done for the field of interpretation of really elevating it to uh, what it is the the not just the profession but the the craft the art of spreading that idea that this is something worth being good at that it, it really does matter what we do uh, in those roles to millions and millions of visitors every year. So thanks for your books, your leadership, the training that you're still doing. That inspires me right there, man.
0: Well, at our best, I think we make a difference for peace and for the environment and for cultures. And I'm sure you've yeah. done it in your career, Pete. Uh, I hear only good, great things about your career in California. So I, I hope our paths cr- cross in person again one of these days. And I hope so, too. Pete, thanks for joining me today. My next guest on January 12th is Karen Hostetter, certified interpretive trainer, owner of Interpret This and Interpretive Training and Writing Consultancy Firm. And we're going to talk story about her work as a consultant to many different kinds of groups. And she is also a master trainer with National Association for Interpretation Training Trainers. Thanks again to Mark Stoffel for use of his beautiful mandolin music. This time it's Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week. See you in two.